Good morning, Journey. And man, welcome to August that feels like October. If every week of August feels like this week of August, I'm good. I'm ready for fall. Give me a hooded sweatshirt and football, and I will be ready to roll. It's good to be back at Journey. Listen, we are now seven weeks away from our six-year anniversary, and we have the most exciting seven weeks of our fifth year of ministry starting today and kind of moving into September. Today, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, I hope you learn and are challenged deeply by what we learned today. Next week, we're going to be praying a special blessing over all of our educators, all of our coaches, all of our bus drivers, all of our office workers, uh, all of our cafeteria helpers, anyone who's going to have influence over kids this year at school. We're going to next year, uh, next week, pray a special blessing over you. So we want you to come on August 20th. We're celebrating back to school Sunday, and we're going to be uh, praying a special blessing over all the kids. So make sure you're here then. And on August 21st, um, we've lined up for you all to see an eclipse uh, for like the first time in 100 years. So that's our gift to you this August. I hope you've marked your calendar for that pretty cool event that I guess is coming. On August 27th, we start a brand new series in the book of Daniel called Fearless. If you are sick of living in fear and you're ready to learn to live in faith over fear, I think the next five weeks starting August 27 and moving to our anniversary Sunday could change your life. And then we jump into September. We've got our men's ministry kickoff event where we're going to try to eat over 2,000 chicken wings while we watch the Chiefs beat the Patriots on Thursday night, September 7. Um, and then we've got NFL kickoff Sunday. That Sunday, Casey Wolf's going to be here running around with all our kids. And then we celebrate anniversary Sunday. So there's a lot going going on. But today we're in the eighth week of our summer series that we're calling Old Time Religion. We have all summer long been studying the theology, the foundations of the early church through the Apostles' Creed. We're seven weeks into it. We got three to go. And here's what you're going to learn the next three weeks if you're a Christian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're, you're welcome to be here. We're so glad you're here. If you have any questions we can answer, please let us know. But if you're here and you're a Christian, here's what you're going to learn the next three weeks. What's in you? what's around you, and what's ahead of you. I want you to say, what's in me? If you're a Christian, we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit that's in you. Say, what's around me? Next week, if you're a Christian, you're going to learn about the church, what's around you. And I want you to say, what's ahead of me? If you're a Christian, we're going to learn about everlasting life in three weeks, what's ahead of you. All of that is taught to us in the scriptures But all of that has been solidified in the foundation of the church through the Apostles' Creed. So if you have inside your bulletin this little sheet, I want you to take it out. We have every Sunday this summer stood and declared the Apostles' Creed together. So I'm going to ask you to stand up right now to do it. It'll be on the screen if you don't have this little sheet. If you're following along on our Journey Church International app, it will be on there. And let's declare for the eighth week in a row the Apostles' Creed, the foundation of our belief in Jesus. Here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated the next three weeks. What's in you, what's around you, what's ahead of you. Today, if you have your pen, I want you to underline that first line of the third paragraph that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know I believe in the Holy Spirit. I have been so convicted and so compelled studying for this message that I want you to know what I believe about the Holy Spirit I can't actually fit into today's message. I have studied so much. I've learned so much. I've got so much to share with you that in 2018, I'm going to take six weeks just to take six weeks to teach on the Holy Spirit and its power in our life. I had two options. I had preached today and kind of cover the basics of the Holy Spirit and do a six-week series in 2018 or just do a four-hour message today and try to cover all of it. I have chosen option A, you're welcome, but make sure and come back in 2018 so we can learn together. But I, I want to start today with some questions. I want you to ponder some questions with me today. Question number one, do you have the Holy Spirit? I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you have the Holy Spirit? That should be a pretty easy yes-no question if it's an I don't know answer. You're going to learn a lot today. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Question number two, do you want the Holy Spirit? If you're in here today and you're not a Christian, but there's really something in the world that can change your heart from the inside out. If that's really available, do you want that? Because that's what the Holy Spirit is. And if you're here today and you're kind of wondering, question three, how can you know if you have the Holy Spirit? We're going to try to answer those questions. Say, where do we start to find the answer to those questions and why do we start there turn to john chapter 15 that's where we're going to start and i'll tell you why as you turn to john chapter 15 we're going to read john 15 26 through john 16 14 today and here's why contextually setting up the timetable of john 15 and john 16 it's between the last supper with jesus and his disciples and jesus arrest in the garden of gethsemane We are in the two or three hours of the most tension-filled time in the life of Jesus and his followers. At dinner, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. You're going to flip this whole thing upside down. And then he told Judas, get out of here and do it. Imagine sitting in a staff meeting where the boss said, someone's going to blow up the company today. It's him. Go do it. And he leaves. And you're left with the shock of sitting around saying, like, are you serious? Like, did that really just happen? That really just happened. After that moment, Jesus is telling his disciples while it's going, why it's going to be okay in John chapter 15 and in John chapter 16. And Jesus said, this whole thing's getting ready to come apart, but let me tell you why it's going to come back together. And in John 15, he teaches them about the Holy Spirit who's going to take this chaotic scene in the Gospels and he's going to put it all back together when he comes in the book of Acts. What are these last-minute instructions Jesus is giving to some very scared disciples in a very tension-filled moment. We start in John 15, 26. We go through John 16, 14, and here's what Jesus said. When the advocate, if you have a pen out, I want you to circle that word in your Bible. If you can highlight it on whatever technology you're using, do that. When the advocate. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father... He will testify about me, and you must also testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. All this I've told you so you won't fall away. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate. There he is again, circle or underline that. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. 
And when he comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Three very basic things that you need to know about the Holy Spirit today. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, three very basic things you need to understand about why the early church said, we believe in the Holy Spirit and he's really important to what's going on between us and God. Number one, you need to know the reason. Because in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us the reason the Holy Spirit didn't just come, but the Holy Spirit was sent. I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but Jesus didn't say, hey, someone is coming. He said, I'm sending somebody. This somebody works for me, works with me. I'm sending you somebody. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit twice as the advocate. The advocate in John 15, 26, he said, the advocate is going to come. In John 16, 7, he said again, the advocate won't come unless I go. So Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the advocate. You say, you mean that company that makes a spark drink? No, that's Advocare. Advocate is something totally different. The Holy Spirit is not a spark drink. Advocate. You say, what is an advocate? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines advocate as someone who pleads the cause of or someone who promotes the interest of. An advocate is a helper. But it's not a good enough English word for what Jesus was saying. Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic. We know that John wrote his letter to his friends in Greek. And in Greek, John used this word. It was the word parakletos. You might look at that and think of parakeet, something that is always with you and kind of alongside you and is becoming like you or vice versa. These are the words that are used to describe parakletos In the New Testament, counselor, intercessor, helper, one who encourages, one who comforts. It's a word that in the New Testament refers exclusively to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? What's the reason it comes? It's a counselor, an intercessor, a helper, one who encourages, one who comforts. Jesus told us in John chapter 16, the reason that I'm giving you the Holy Spirit is to help you. It's to help you. So do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you need the Holy Spirit? Does anyone in the house today need some spiritual help? If the answer to that is yes, then yes, you need the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit because I'm going away, but he will help you. He'll help you like I would help you. You know, if you were married to Jesus, your marriage would be better than it is. You're not married to Jesus, but Jesus said, I'll put the Holy Spirit in your marriage so he can help you like I would help you. You know, if your kids were Jesus... They wouldn't even have a curfew or any kind of extra software on their phone. Your kids aren't Jesus, but Jesus said, I'll give your kids the Holy Spirit so that you can function with me and your family. You know, if you worked for Jesus, you would like your job more. And no one in here works for Jesus. Some of you actually think you work for Satan. But Jesus said, in your job, I'll put the Holy Spirit there so that he can help you like I would help you. See, Jesus said, I can't be with you anymore, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so it feels like I'm always with you. I'm going to give him to you so he'll help you like I help you. Because you're going to go through a lot of things in life that you think, man, I wish Jesus was here. I will be there through the Holy Spirit. 
parakletos. We actually, in the year 2017, we actually understand this word a little bit, especially if we have kids in school, because we're getting ready to send our kids to school in a couple weeks, and all the schools now have paras, paraprofessionals. What's a para? It's someone who comes alongside someone who needs help. Some of you in the room are paras. Some of you, our, our kids can't exist without their para. What is a parrot? Someone who comes alongside and makes sure they make it. That's the same thought of this word, paramedic. Somebody who comes alongside you medically and helps you. Parachute, something that hangs above you so that if you're dumb enough to jump out of a plane, you don't hit the ground at like warp speed. Para, a para is a helper. So do you need spiritual help? I mean, when I ask, do you want the Holy Spirit? Anyone who needs spiritual help should want the Holy Spirit. If you need spiritual help, you've got the Holy Spirit. So, okay, well, how's, how's, how's the Holy Spirit going to help me? What is the Holy Spirit going to do? We know the reason he came was to help, but we also see the responsibility that he has. Jesus said he's going to help you in these ways. Here's what he's going to do. Look at verses 8 through 11. Jesus said the reason the Holy Spirit's coming is because you need help. We all need help spiritually. I can't be with you all every day. But I can through the Holy Spirit. Here's how I'm going to help you through the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. About judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now i got to be honest with you. When I read this verse studying for this message, I was deeply, deeply impacted in a way that I did not expect, right? I've got three Bible degrees, a bachelor's and a couple masters from college. I've read my Bible through. I think I'm on my 18th time of reading my Bible through in, in ministry. The last 20 years I've preached and given nearly a thousand different Bible studies. There's not a lot that I read that I think I've never seen that before, but that happened this week in this verse, in this translation. Look at verse 8 again. I want to show you a line that when I read it, deeply, deeply impacted me because it was God whispering to me, go deeper. It was God telling me, you don't understand enough yet, go deeper. In John 16, 8, here's what it reads in the New International Version, which I'm preaching out of today. It said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. Prove the world to be in the wrong. I read that and I thought, I've never heard that phrase before. I read my Bible through every year, cover to cover. I try to always read it in a different translation. So I've seen all the ways that this is written. But when you get a song stuck in your head, even if you sing it the wrong way, the song becomes the one in your head, not the one on the radio. Like, right, once you memorize something, that's the way you hear it. So every time I ever read John 16, 8, in my head, I read it like it was in the New King James Version. That was all my educational training. My first 15 years of preaching and teaching was out of the New King James Version. So every time I read John 16, 8, I've preached on John 16, 8. I read it, I heard it, I said it this way. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And I thought that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I've had it memorized. That's the way I've always seen that. And this week I read it different. He will prove the way. And I thought, that sounds different. And I felt like God whispered to me, go deeper. Because Christian, you are just scratching the surface of what you understand the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Go deeper. So I looked at this word conviction and I thought, you know what? Conviction means to feel something different. 
When we think of convict, we think of somebody who's been sentenced for a crime that they're guilty of. Or when we think of things that we have convictions about. Convictions are things that we feel deeply. So I thought, okay, so it's the Holy Spirit's job. For years, I thought it's the Holy Spirit's job to, to convict me, to make me feel deeply about things. And that's part of it, but not nearly all of it. I mean, three of the many roles of the Holy Spirit are to convict us of sin so that we might feel deeply, feel bad when we sin. Like, that's the Holy Spirit. When you do something that's spiritually wrong and you immediately feel guilt, that's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us, to make us feel deeply about things that are wrong. It's also one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to convict us of righteousness so that we might feel fulfilled when we live like Jesus lived. It's why you feel so good when you go on a mission trip. You're living like Jesus would live and the Holy Spirit inside of you is saying, this is life. It's why when you volunteered for Love Week and you served in the community, it's why your heart felt so good because that was the Holy Spirit saying, this is how Jesus would live if he were here. When you stop to encourage somebody or when you forgive someone and show them grace, it's why you feel good on the inside because the Holy Spirit is saying, this should fulfill you. This is how Jesus would do things. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. It's the Holy Spirit's role to convict us of judgment. So we might feel compelled to tell our friends about a Savior named Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us see friends who don't know Jesus and to think they need, they need Jesus like I need Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us want to invite our neighbors and our family and our friends to church. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us feel things deeply. But that is just scratching the surface of what the Holy Spirit does. By the way, I ask you the question, how can we know whether or not we have the Holy Spirit? Well, there's your three gauges right there. If you feel bad when you sin, it's a pretty good chance the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. If you feel really fulfilled when you live like Jesus, there's a pretty good chance that the Holy Spirit's living in your heart. If you feel compelled to help people who don't know Jesus learn about Jesus, there's a pretty good chance the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your soul. However, if you sin and you never feel bad, that's a problem. If when you're serving, you're thinking this is a waste of time, or when you give, this is a waste of money, there's a problem. If you live and work around people every day who don't know Jesus and you don't care, that's a problem. You have either learned to take the remote control and mute the Holy Spirit or he does not live inside you. Because Jesus says if he lives inside you, you feel deeply in these things. However, that's just scratching the surface. Like that's the first day of work with the Holy Spirit in your life. You see, the primary goal of the Holy Spirit is not to change our feelings. It's to change our worldview at the level of our soul. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to make you feel bad, feel fulfilled, feel compelled. I mean, the Holy Spirit does that, but that, that's not where God wants to stop in your life. The Holy Spirit doesn't just want to change the way we feel. He wants to change the way we think. He wants to change the way we view things. He wants to change the way we live our lives. And I learned all that from this phrase that I thought, that's not the way it is. The Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong. So I had to go look this up in the original language and say, what does that mean? Prove the world to be in the wrong. God said, go deeper. That word in the Greek language can mean two things. It can mean to convict someone of guilt. But it can also mean the work of convincing someone to see things properly. When Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to prove the world to be in the wrong, he said that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us to see things as God sees them. 
Let me tell you my picture of the Holy Spirit's work in my life before I started this message. Okay, it's a picture of a courtroom, and here's the courtroom. Like, I, I'm, I'm the defendant. Jesus is the judge. And the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney saying, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. On sin, he's wrong. And I'm like, yep, guilty. On righteousness, he's wrong. No, yep, guilty. On judgment, he's wrong. Guilty. I thought the Holy Spirit was my accuser, not my advocate. And Jesus was just judging me. I'm wrong, wrong, wrong. It's the Holy Spirit's job to help me know that I'm wrong. That is not the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the scene should look like this. We're still in a courtroom, okay? But now we're sitting in the jury. We are not the defendant. The Holy Spirit is still the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus is on trial. And the Holy Spirit is trying to convince us to put our whole faith behind this man. The Holy Spirit is trying to convince us that everything he says is true. The Holy Spirit is trying to convince us to put a vote of confidence behind him. We are the jury and the Holy Spirit is trying to convince us to see things his way. And what I've learned is this spiritual fact as I've prepared this message. Convincing is greater than convicting. And a lot of us have experienced the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. A lot. But we've not experienced the convincing work of the Holy Spirit. And if we only live at the level of conviction, we've got some spiritual problems. First, we've got this big spiritual problem. As Christians, we keep getting convicted, but we aren't getting convinced. Anybody else sick of, like me, promising God you're going to do something because you get convicted? You get convicted to do something. You say, God, my goodness, I, f- I feel so bad. God, I'm going to commit to do this. And then I don't do it. I've been convicted but not convinced. Or I get convicted that I should stop doing something. The Holy Spirit moves in my heart and says, you can't quit. keep talking like that. You can't keep treating people like that. You've got to be kinder. You can't go a week without praying. You can't be materialistic in your heart. I say, you're right, God, I'm going to stop. I get convicted. I feel bad, but I'm not convinced. Nothing changes. How many times have we been convicted to read our Bible, but not convinced? How many times have we been convicted to pray, but not convinced? How many times have we been convicted to reach out to someone who's hurting, but not convinced? Conviction without convincing literally is nothing more than a feeling. And the Holy Spirit came for more than a feeling. I think that's a song that someone wrote. We could sing it about the Holy Spirit. So that's a problem. But there's another problem. There's a problem that I see in church today that there are a lot of church people. I'm not going to call them Christians, but I'm going to call them church people. They might be Christians. There's a lot of people who go to church today that don't agree with God that sin is wrong. They don't see things God's way. That's a problem. In 1 John 1, 9, there's this great verse. So John, who wrote down the words of Jesus in John chapter 16, would later as a pastor write a book to his church. And one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, for those of you who have grown up in church, is 1 John 1, 9. It says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, the Greek word confess there, I never understood. I, I mean, I knew it, but I just didn't understand it. Because the Greek word confess means to say the same thing. So what does that mean? Like, like a copycat? What does it mean to confess your, sin, confess your sins? Say the same things. Here's what it means. It means to agree with God that sin is wrong. If we agree with God that sin is wrong, God will forgive us. And I think there's some people who are waffling on that. Matter of fact, I know there are. We, we did a series to kick off the year called Family Strong. One of the greatest series we've ever done in the history of our church. 
The first message of that series, I preached on a dad named Jacob who brought his family back to God after being away from them 20 years. And this dad named Jacob had three steps for his family. They had to put away the foreign gods. They had to purify themselves, um, and they had to change their garments. Purify ourselves, I told our church, meant that they had to turn from sin. And I said on a Sunday morning at this church, sin is wrong. You got to understand, sin is wrong. And then I listed six of the six million. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. I have a family in our church who has not been back to our church since that message, and they told me they'll never return to our church. Because they told me afterwards I offended them. They said, we don't want to go to a church where a pastor stands up and says sin is wrong. That's offensive. And so I apologize that I offended you. But like I wasn't speaking, like I'm not in charge. Like I was just, I was just saying what God says about sin. I was just agreeing with God that sin is wrong. They said, we don't want to go to a church where, where people are told that God says sin is wrong. And I said, then we are the wrong church for you. Because I agree with the Holy Spirit that what God says is wrong is wrong. And you know what? Some of us are waffling on that. There's some things in Scripture that God says that's sin, and we're thinking, well, wait a minute. It's not that bad, right? If we confess, if we agree with God about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, that one day there's going to be a final day and an eternity after that for everyone based on the decision they made with you. If we agree with God on those things, we know the Holy Spirit dwells richly in our hearts. But there's too many Christians in our church who have kind of hired God to be their boss. And when you hire someone to be the boss, who's the boss? Anybody? When you hire someone to be the boss, who's the boss? The person who does the hiring. So we live in a world where Christians have kind of given God permission in certain areas of their life, but they've kind of said, stay away from that one. Like, God, you can have this place in my life, but not all of my life. We've given God permission to be God under a very specific set of circumstances, and he is not to violate those because our God works for us. I'm not sure that I would call that person a Christian, or they would be very, very young in their faith if that's how they believed Things with God worked, but that's where a lot of us are. Instead, as we look into the New Testament at people who follow Jesus, we find this, that the mindset of a genuine Christianity in that metaphor is more surrendering all authority and becoming an employee of God. Listen, it gets even better. An employee who doesn't get paid. That's what real submission, that's what real surrender looks like when we read in the New Testament people who follow Jesus. It's, it's not people who say, I want to hire Jesus to be my spiritual kind of voice. It's people who say, I want to work for Jesus. And he didn't have to pay me. I say, Christian, where does the Bible say that? Romans 1.1. 1, 1. The Apostle Paul wrote his most influential book. He knew it would go to more people than anyone else in the world. And he had to think over the opening of this book over and over and over. How do I want people to know me? And Paul starts off his book, Romans 1-1, by saying this, Paul, first thing you need to know about me, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm separated to the gospel of God, but I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know what a bondservant was? That was a real role in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. A bondservant was a slave who had earned his freedom and who said, I'd rather be a slave because I trust my master so much. It was someone who chose 
to be bonded to a master in slavery because slavery under this master was better than freedom by myself. Paul said, that's how I see Jesus. I am free to live my life however I want to, but I choose to let Jesus be my master. That's the picture of Christianity. And when we choose to allow the Holy Spirit to have all of us, well, that's where the miracles begin to happen. You need a miracle? Some of you in the house today, you need a miracle. Like, you need a miracle bad. Say, where's the beginning point of a miracle? It's letting the Holy Spirit have all of you. You see, the result of allowing the Holy Spirit to control our life, number three, we see the result is that we glorify God. So we see the reason that the Holy Spirit came. We see the responsibility of the Holy Spirit in our life, but we see the result. If, if we actually let the Holy Spirit teach us to agree with God in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment, the result, according to John sixteen fourteen, is that our lives will glorify Jesus. You know what the word glorify means? The word glorify means to assign highest praise by bringing something to the center of attention. Jesus said, if you let the Holy Spirit control your life, your life will assign highest praise to Jesus because it'll bring him into focus in the life of people. So I'm married to someone who's not a Christian, and it's really, really hard. When they look at you and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to take over, they should assign highest praise to Jesus. It's difficult at my work. I'm the boss and I'm the only Christian, and all my employees talk behind my back about my Christianity. When they look at you, even in their sin, and let's call sin, sin, it's okay. They should assign high praise to Jesus because he's at the center of your life. When people look at your house on the street, they should assign highest praise to Jesus. Kids, when you go back to school in a couple weeks and they pass your locker, sit at your lunch table, when people look at you, they don't just think of Jesus, but they praise Jesus because of what they see in you. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit is in charge. The Holy Spirit's goal in your life is to bring Jesus to the center of your attention. So let me ask you a question. Because there's only room for one thing at the center of your soul. What has your attention? What is the thing that lives at the center of your attention right now? You thought about it as soon as you woke up. You contemplated not coming to church because of it. You can't wait to get out of church to get back to it. It's the thing you're scheduling all of life around next week. What lives at the center of your attention? Your job? Is it your finances? Is it your kids? I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a world where we've allowed our will to revolve around our kids. Is it your hobbies? Is is it even your marriage? What's the thing that lives at the center of attention in your life? Because Jesus said, I'd like to be there, but there's only one seat there. And if something else is in it, I can't be in it. In John chapter 2, we see the first miracle of Jesus. It shows us what's needed for a miracle in our life. Jesus is a wedding of one of his relatives that lasts for a week. In biblical times, weddings would last for a week. Some of us have been to long weddings. None of us have been to a wedding that lasts for a week. Thank God, right? I mean, could you imagine going to some random relative's wedding that lasted for a week? What a waste of time. Forgive me for all my cousins um, who might be watching. Um, uh, The wedding would last for a week. And they ran out of wine early at this week-long festivity. And Jesus' mom came to him. She was in charge of kind of the hospitality ministry. And she's like, we're out of wine. What what are we going to do? 
And Jesus told his disciples, the requirement of a miracle in my life, Jesus told his disciples over in the corner are six empty jars. If you will take those jars, I can fill them up. The requirement of a miracle, Jesus has to find things that are empty. So what is sitting in the chair in the middle of your life? Because something's there. And Jesus would love to fill your soul. But listen, Jesus doesn't exist to top off your soul. In American Christianity, we kind of live our life and we want Jesus to pour on like the top 5 or 10% and to be like a, a waiter or server at a restaurant and to just keep topping off our life. We don't want to give him all our life, but we want him to top it off. And Jesus says, if I can find an empty person, I can fill them. But they have to empty what's inside first. Inside your bulletin, I've put what this looks like so maybe you can see it in print. I've put inside every bulletin this, what I call an empty vessel contract. Because this is what trusting God with the center of your life looks like. And let me tell you the one line that's on an empty vessel contract. This empty vessel contract says this, God... I give you the right to the following in my life. And then here's what you do. You sign it. You hand it to Jesus blank. And you say, you can fill it in. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can I make my own list? If you're God, you can make your own list. But an empty vessel contract looks like this. This is what an empty jar looks like. So Jesus can fill it. God, I give you the right to the following in my life. And then you sign it and you say, you fill it out. You fill it out. But what if God puts something on there that I don't want to do? You do it, and it'll make you more like Jesus. What if God asked me to serve? Then you serve. It'll make you more like Jesus. What if God asked me to give? Then you give. It will make you more like Jesus. What if God asked me to forgive someone who has deeply hurt me or someone close to me? Then you forgive them because it'll make you more like Jesus. What if God asked me to stay in a marriage that I don't want to be in anymore? Unless there's abuse or harm headed your way, you work to stay in it. It will make you more like Jesus. What if God wants me to work less so I can be with my family more and it means I make less money? Then you do that. It will make you more like Jesus. What if God wants more of a commitment that I'm willing to give? Then you do it because it'll make you more like Jesus. See, this is what Christianity, the heart of Christianity looks like. God, I give you the right to the following in my life. Then you sign it and say, fill it out. You're in charge. Fill it out. Whatever you say, you're in charge. Fill it out. You say, why would I want to do that? Because one day we're going to stand face to face with God. And I read a verse two weeks ago in our journey Bible reading plan that I read it. I don't remember ever reading it before like this. And I read it and I thought that's one of my favorite new verses in the entire Bible. In 1 John 4, 7, John, who wrote the words of Jesus in John 16, again, writing a book to his church, said, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. You want to be confident when you stand before God one day? John said, here's how you do it. In this world, live like Jesus. You want to be confident one day? You realize one day you're going to leave this world and you're going to stand before God. John said, you want to be confident on that day you stand before God? It's real simple. In this world, live like Jesus. You say, how do I do that? You empty yourself from whatever sits on the throne of your life. You give that throne to Jesus. And you say, whatever you want. 
And the Holy Spirit teaches you to have what Paul would tell the church in Colossians is called the mind of Christ. He'll teach you to think like Jesus. He'll teach you to love like Jesus. He'll teach you to forgive like Jesus. He'll teach you to have perseverance like Jesus. He'll teach you to have patience like Jesus. He'll teach you how to feel close to God like Jesus. Jesus actually told his disciples, you'll do greater things than I did if you ask the Father because I'll help you. You'll minister like Jesus. But God doesn't want to top you off this morning. He wants to fill you up. He don't want to top you off. He wants to fill you up. But he can't fill things that are full. You ever tried to eat Thanksgiving dinner twice? And one day, right, you got to go to grandma's house and the other grandma's house. You can't fill up twice with Thanksgiving dinner. You puke one of them out. Jesus can't fill you if you're already full. You got to present to him an empty jar and say, all right, do your thing. That's where the miracles begin, where the Holy Spirit enters an empty vessel. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning and with every...